Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, Daniel was so adorable during that dedication, wasn't he? And he was locked in. He was paying close attention. That was awesome. Uh, Before we get into things today, I want to clear something up. Last week, Kenny started, I guess, what we might call the Polaroid Project. All right, if you were here last week, then you were invited to get your picture taken so that he could memorize your name, And then the way that he recounts it over the course of this last week, if he gets every name right, he said, what should happen? And and he says that you all chanted in unison, shave Matt's head. Is that true? Everyone chanted in unison, shave Matt's head. I see. I see. And what if he doesn't get them all right? What do we do then? Shave his head? My suggestion was that he grow the hair out he's able down around here really long and comb it all the way over. Don't you think? That would be a good look. All right, full comb over if he doesn't get them all right. And I might have stolen a couple of Polaroids out of the pack to assure the outcome. Wonderful. Uh, You guys, today we come to the last message in our summer series called Tools of Wisdom, where we have been looking at the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is all about how God has designed us as people to live. I I don't know about any of the parents in the room, but when my kids were little, we wound up making some pilgrimages uh, to water parks in Wisconsin. Anyone else make pilgrimages to Wisconsin Dells with their kids? We made too many of these. And I know, parents, you're saying, one is too many. Yes, that's true. But we made several. And when we would go with my kids when they were young, they would go up to the top of the slides over and over again, and I'd chase after them and go down and up and down. And when my old man legs couldn't take climbing those stairs anymore, I would try to convince them to go to the lazy river. Come on, let's go float in tubes in the lazy river, you guys. And we would go and float in the lazy river, and I'd abandon the tube and swim. Have you guys ever swam with those jets in the lazy river? I'm not a great swimmer, but I feel like Michael Phelps when I am swimming with the current in the lazy river. Like, you feel so fast as a swimmer with those jets pushing you along. But one time, I was separated from my kids in the lazy river, and I came around a corner, and there they were standing up on the edge as I came around that corner saying, Dad, Mom says it's time for dinner. And I've got a rule about needing to be told more than once about dinner, and so I'm like, oh, i got to get out. It's time for dinner. But I had already floated past the stairs where they were standing. I thought, no big deal. I'll just work back against the current of the lazy river and get out. And so I started trying to work back against the current of the lazy river. And I wasn't making any progress. I thought, well, it's water. Maybe I'm supposed to swim. So I tried swimming against the current of the lazy river. And I was clearly going backwards at this point. And so I tried a hybrid where I was like running in the lazy river and swimming with my arms until I accidentally hit this young mom that had her little kid on a tube and decided maybe I'd gone far enough with all of this. And I floated down to the next set of steps and got out and went and joined my family. Because when it comes to the Lazy River, it's designed to go a particular direction. You are not designed to go against the flow of that Lazy River. 
And in the same sense, Proverbs teaches us about the flow of the way that God has made us as people to operate. And it says there are people who live according to the way that God has made us. And what are those people called? The wise, that's right. Making wise decisions is making decisions in line with the way that God has made us to live. And Proverbs tells us that there are consequences, positive consequences in our life when we live in wisdom. There are often positive consequences in our circumstances. There are always positive consequences in our soul when we live according to the way that God made us to live. But Proverbs describes another group of people. They live against the current of the way that God made people to live, and they are called the fool. And living foolishly is to live against the way that God made people, designed people to live. And there are consequences for living against the way God designed us to live. Often there are consequences in our circumstances. Often. But there are always consequences to our soul. Negative consequences to our soul for living against the way that God made us to live. And over the course of this sermon series, we've looked at a number of different topics that are covered in the book of Proverbs, like how we use our words, how we work in our workplace, how we deal with our money, how we raise our kids, how we deal with our spouse in marriage, and on and on and on. And we've been looking at the way that God has made us to live as people in those areas. But none of those areas matter without today's lesson. None of what we have learned thus far matters unless we get today's lesson right. You can try all you want to live according to God's way in all of these subjects that we have talked about, and none of it will work out for you unless we get today's lesson right. It is the most important lesson, and we have saved it for last here. And it is bound up in a single verse in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Some of your translations say, Above all things, what? Guard your heart. Right? Anybody have a translation that says that? Keep your heart with all vigilance. Above all things, guard your heart. Why? Why is this so crucial? Why is guarding or keeping our heart so central? Or maybe even a more important question to start with is, what is your heart? What is your heart? The Bible in the Old and New Testament uses the word heart hundreds of times, and it almost never refers to the human heart. But by looking at our physical heart that's in our bodies, we can actually gain understanding of what the Bible means when it uses this word heart. Right? That's kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I meant it to be gross. That's right. Disgusting. What do you know about the human heart? How big is it? Right? Put, yeah, put your fist up. Absolutely. It's a little bit bigger than the fist when it's clenched like that. Unless you're a Grinch and then it's three times smaller than that. How many times does the heart beat per minute? A hundred, I'm sorry, per day, per day. A hundred and five thousand times it beats per day. You have three liters of blood, six liters of blood in your body, and it cycles it through three times per minute. 
a blood cell travels 12,000 miles over the course of a day through your body. 12,000 miles each blood cell travels, bringing much-needed oxygen so that every part of your body can live and function the way that it is meant to. Because the heart is the core of it all. What happens if the heart goes bad? It all goes bad, doesn't it? 600,000 people will die of heart disease this year in America. One in four Americans will die of heart failure. It's easily the leading cause of death in America. Because when the heart goes bad, it all goes bad. Because the heart is the very core of who we are. Everything depends upon the heart. And when we think about the physical heart, And the role that it plays in our bodies, we learn more about what the scripture means when it describes our spiritual heart. The Hebrew word that's used here is lev, and it has two definitions. The first is this, the center or core of who we are. The innermost place of who we are is the first definition, the very core of our person. The second definition to lev is this, it is the seat or throne of our life. And we really need to combine these two definitions in order to get a full understanding of what the Bible is talking about when it uses this word heart. It is the inner core of who we are where the throne of our life dwells. Let me say that again. What is our heart in the scripture? It is the inner core of who we are where the throne of our life dwells. And who or what sits on the throne in our innermost parts, impacts every part of our life, doesn't it? Who or what sits on the throne at the very core of who we are impacts all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions. The Bible teaches us that because of sin, every one of us is born with self sitting on the throne at the core of who we are. That, That is what the first sin was all about. God made this amazing paradise for Adam and Eve, and he said, you guys, enjoy. Have at it. It's all yours. Do what you will. But in this one area, with this one tree, I'm going to give you an opportunity to show that I'm the one who sits on the throne of your heart. Every other thing, you you can have at it and enjoy all that I have made, but in this one area... I'm giving you an opportunity to show that it is me that dwells on the throne in the core of who you are. And they did. Until the day when they put self on the throne and decided to disobey and rebel against God. And ever since that time, people have been born with self on the throne in their life. Last weekend, my wife and I, we took care of her sister's kids. And among those children, there's a toddler, right? What an amazing reminder that we are born with self on the throne. (laughs) Two days and we were exhausted. So many battles of the will, it was crazy. It, It reminded me of another time where self climbed back on the throne of my own life. Uh, ten years ago, my wife and I, my wife and kids and I, were all vacationing at this cabin in the mountains of Montana. And while we were there in this beautiful setting, another one of Erica's sisters that lives in Washington was traveling through to Minnesota and said, "Can we stop and stay with you for a couple of days?" And we said, "Sure, that would be great." 
And so they came, and the first day they were there, we decided that they would all go horseback riding. We had this connection with this ranch there, and they would take us for free horseback riding through the mountains and all this gorgeous scenery. And so we decided that we would all go horseback riding. Only my wife's sister had a four-year-old and a toddler. And they were not old enough to go horseback riding through the mountains. So it was determined that since I'd already gone a couple of times, I would stay back and watch the four-year-old and the toddler while everybody else went out horseback riding. No sooner had they gotten in the car and I heard the car doors close and they headed up the dirt driveway when I find that toddler over in the corner of the room under the kitchen table grunting and red-faced. I know, I know why a toddler goes in the corner and grunts and gets red-faced. And all I could think was, why couldn't you do this two minutes earlier? Are you kidding me? Like, what do I do now? My first instinct was to run to the window to see if I could catch them before they got all the way out on the road. But they were too far down the road. I, I was not fast enough to catch them. My second instinct was, what? I mean, can't he just sit in it until they get back? I mean, it's only four hours. I mean, I but then I caught a whiff and said, no, that's, that's not going to work. Ugh. There was a mountain river, the East Rosebud River, that ran about 10 or 15 yards behind the cabin. I thought, maybe I can go out and just hold him in the river in his diaper and it'll all wash out. I mean, the water's probably 40 degrees coming out of the mountains. He'll get numb quick. It'll all go, it's great. And then I thought maybe that wasn't the best move either. And as I sat there, all that I kept thinking about over and over again was, why couldn't you do this two minutes earlier so that your mom would have to change you instead of me? Now think about that. She had a four-year-old and a toddler. What had she been doing for the last four years? Changing diapers Every day, hundreds and hundreds of diapers she had been changing over the course of the last four years. My, my youngest kid was 11. I hadn't changed a diaper in nine years. And yet my first instinct was, why couldn't she do it? Right? Make her do it among the hundreds of others that she's had to do. I don't want to do it. Why is that? Because self constantly wants to creep back onto the throne in our life, doesn't it? It'll take every opportunity to creep back onto the throne of our life. And if we live with self on the throne, a great big bowl of me on the throne at the core of who we are, God says there's punishment for that. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The Hebrew word for arrogant here is often translated proud. Arrogant or proud of heart. Who are the proud of heart? Those who have self on the throne at the core of who they are instead of their maker. That's who's arrogant or proud in heart. And here God says, be assured they will be punished. It may not look like they're being punished here right now, but be assured. Punishment will come for those who live with self on the throne at the core of their life. Thanks be to God, there is another way to live. Right? Thanks be to God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is another way to live where we don't have to live with self on the throne. We can live with Jesus Christ on the throne of our life. That is good news. Right? That is absolutely the good news. 
Everyone, anyone in the room ever heard the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart? Ever heard that phrase, ask Jesus into your heart? What does that mean? I am confident that the multiple times growing up in the church as a kid that I was invited at age four, age six, age eight to ask Jesus into my heart, I had no idea what that phrase meant. I figured that I was supposed to pray some prayer and then Jesus would come and live in my upper torso someplace. I was told it wasn't my actual heart, but he'd dwell in here someplace and then I'd go to heaven. That was the extent of my understanding of what it meant to ask Jesus into art. It may not be the most helpful phrase to use, especially with children. But as we think about it, and we think about how the Bible defines the heart, what does it actually mean to ask Jesus into your heart? Right? It means he takes up his rightful place on the throne in the core of who we are. Isn't that what it means? The throne for which he and he alone was made, God comes to dwell on that throne. We repent of a life with self on the throne, and instead Jesus takes up his rightful place on the throne of our life and changes everything about us, everything in our life. That's what the phrase means. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus says here, there's a fundamental choice. And that fundamental choice is, you can remain on the throne of your own life. Your life can, stay, can remain about your dreams, your desires, and your decisions. And he says, if that's true and you hold on to your life with you at the center, you're not my follower. You're not my disciple. He says, but there's another option. And that other option is you repent of self on the throne. And I dwell on the throne in the core of who you are, and your concerns out of that become about my dreams, my desires, my decisions. And with me living at the core of your innermost life, then you are my disciple. Then you are my follower in this world. That's what it means to ask Jesus into your heart. To ask Jesus into your heart doesn't mean you pray a prayer so you get to go to heaven. To ask Jesus to come into your heart means you recognize that you need to repent of a life of self on the throne in your life, that you need to give up all desires, dreams, and decisions of your own and take on the desires, dreams, and decisions of Jesus ruling on the throne of your life. And when that happens, everything changes. And there is so much goodness and so much joy in life when Jesus is ruling in his proper place in our life, when he is sitting on the throne. God changes everything when Jesus rules on the throne of our life. We get a new heart. The Bible says that when Jesus reigns on the throne of our life, our old hard heart is removed and God gives us a soft heart. A heart with brand new desires because Jesus now reigns on the throne of our life. Well, what kind of new desires do we get when Jesus reigns on the throne of our life? First and foremost is the desire for more of Jesus. He reigns on the throne of our life and we want nothing more than to know him more and to spend more time with him. 
when Jesus really comes to reign on the throne of our life, we also gain this newfound desire and passion for his word. First Peter says that his word is the pure spiritual milk that the believer, what? Craves, right? We, we crave it. We have this intense desire for the word of God if he dwells on the throne of our heart. We abhor sin if Jesus dwells on the throne of our heart. We, we abhor it because it is the exact opposite of the one who rules over us. And so we can't stand it if Jesus is ruling on the throne of our heart. And we want to become like him more than anything. Because we recognize that that's why he saved us. So that we might be made, remade in the image of God. Made in the image of Christ. Our desires transform when Jesus dwells at the core of who we are. Now, do we always live according to those desires in every situation and every decision? No. No, we don't, do we? That's what, that's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. The good that I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do, and the bad that I want to do, I seem to do constantly. Who will save me from this body of death? I, I have these newfound desires where I want to know Jesus more, where I want to know his word deeply, where I want to please him with all that I have, and yet... So many times that's not how I'm living. But for the follower of Jesus, when they recognize that Jesus' way is over here and the way that they're living is over here, what do they do? They repent. They repent and say, no, I'm coming into alignment with Jesus. He's the king who reigns on the throne of my life in the innermost core of who I am. That's what it means to ask Jesus into our heart. Jesus changes us. He changes everything about us. That's what happened with those who were his followers in the scripture, wasn't it? You think of the apostle John, who at one point wanted to call down fire from the sky in order to destroy an entire Samaritan village. On another instance, he and his brother wanted to wedge out the other disciples so that they could get first place in the kingdom. But when Jesus genuinely reigned in John's life, he became known as the apostle of what? Love who regularly taught and practiced putting others first. That's what happened in the life of Mary Magdalene, who when Jesus found her was demon-possessed and living as a harlot. But when Jesus took up residence in the innermost place of who she is on the throne of her life, she became more faithful and dedicated to Jesus than any of his disciples and went with him to the very end. It's what happened in the life of Paul, who spent his life killing and persecuting Christians. But when Jesus took his rightful place on the throne of Paul's life. He couldn't help but share the gospel everywhere he went because Jesus sat on the throne and that changes and transforms everything. Now friends, the book of Proverbs says there are people who will fake this kind of heart change. The book of Proverbs teaches us that there are people who will fake this kind of heart change, that they will look like God's followers on the outside But on the inside, their heart will still be very much dedicated to me, me, me. Proverbs chapter 26, 23 says, Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Read that again. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. What what is this talking about? Well, 3,000 years ago, people would make and sell pottery or earthen vessels. And sometimes in the process of making a piece of pottery, it would crack. And as the potter, what would you do in that situation? Well, if you were an 
honest potter, you would throw that piece of pottery away because it was cracked, and you would start again. But that cost you, didn't it? And so a dishonest potter would fill that crack with material. And then they would put wax all around over that part of the pot. And then when it was glazed, you wouldn't be able to tell that a crack was ever there because of the glaze of that wax. This process was so common that the ancient Greek word for sincerity actually just means no wax. It's all it means, no wax. It alludes to this process and says, no covering over. And Proverbs chapter 26, 23 says, there are people whose hearts continue to be about me, 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 but they cover over it with fervent lips. They show up at church on Sundays. They pray before their meals. They may even lead Bible studies, but their heart is still thoroughly dedicated to my wants, my desires, my dreams, living my way. And Christ is not on the throne in their life. The Holy Spirit revealed to me when I was a youth that this was me. That to anyone who looked at my life for a, from a distance, I would look like a, a good follower of Jesus. I went to church regularly. I was even willing to pray out loud occasionally when the occasion called for it and no one else was willing to. But as God began to work in my life, the Spirit convicted me, yeah, your, your life looks decent on the outside, but your heart is all about Matt, Matt, Matt. Matt's dreams, Matt's desires, Matt's decisions. And through the grace and mercy of God, the Holy Spirit convicted me of this and led me to a place of repentance where I was able to recognize even my desire to look good on the outside was all about who? Me, me, me. And that couldn't stand any longer if I was going to genuinely be a follower of Jesus. I needed to follow Jesus. He needed to take the place on the throne in the core of my life. Some fake Jesus on the throne. I've been there. I've lived that. And there is nothing worse in life than to be a person faking Jesus on the throne while self remains at the core of who we are. Well, how do I know? How do I know who or what sits on the throne of my life? If I'm just faking or if Jesus genuinely has this place on the throne of my life? Proverbs says God will test you in order to reveal what is in your heart. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. Through superheating, you can tell whether gold or silver are pure or impure. You can put them in the crucible. You can bring them under intense heat and it reveals the amount of purity or impurity that exists there. And in the same sense, God will bring us under heat. The heat of challenges. The heat of hardship. In order to reveal what is really going on in our heart and who genuinely is sitting on the throne. That's what he did with Abraham when he said, Abraham... I want you to sacrifice your only son. You know, the, the child I promised to you, the child of promise, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Because Abraham, I, I, I would like to know, you know, is it, is it you that sits on the throne of your heart or, or do I sit on the throne of your heart? 
And it became clear in that situation. God sat on the throne of Abraham's heart, and God provided in a miraculous way for what was needed in that situation. When God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, it was a test. Jonah, what is on the, in the core of your heart? Do you sit on the throne because you don't want to go to Nineveh, or do I sit on the throne and you'll be obedient in this situation? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. This is a trial, Jonah. But do I sit on the throne or do you sit on the throne? When Peter stood around a fire to keep warm on the night of Jesus' trial, and a young girl asked him, hey, aren't you one of his followers? The heat got turned up. And all of a sudden, in that moment, the question became, Peter, do I sit on the throne of your life or do you still sit on the throne of your life? In Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, as Peter is preaching one message after another about salvation in Jesus Christ, as he is arrested, as he is beaten, as he is told, don't you dare preach in that name again, and he responds, we will obey Jesus, not you. All of those situations are situations in which Peter is being tested. Peter, do I now sit on the throne of your life or do you sit on the throne of your life? What a blessed transformation had taken place there. Friends, the last 18 months during this COVID season have been a test of our hearts. I don't know how you primarily view the last 18 months, and there's a lot of different ways to view the last season that we have been through. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are encouraged to see it at least uh, in large part as a test of the state of our hearts. The temperature has been turned up. And it makes clear who or what is ruling at the core of who we are. And over the course of the last 18 months, I have seen people fall away from Jesus and from church altogether. I have seen people who have grabbed onto the idols of money and politics and family like never before over the last 18 months. I have seen people who have who have grown deeper and deeper in bitterness, in complaining, in grumbling over the last 18 months. But I've also seen people over the last year and a half dig deeper into relationship with Jesus Christ than they've ever been before. I've seen people over the last 18 months who have spent their time looking around saying, Who is it that needs encouragement? Who is it that needs to be lifted up so that they will run more towards Jesus today because they recognize that that's Jesus' call on my life right now. I've seen people more focused on the gospel. Even with all of the mess around, they have just stayed so pure and so true to the message of the gospel in the last 18 months. I've seen people who have so thoroughly been overwhelmed by a vision of what is to come when they dwell directly with God that they are content no matter what is going on around them because they recognize that this world is not their home. That ultimately they are what the New Testament calls just sojourners here, foreigners and exiles, and that they have a genuine home elsewhere that is the place of their hope. That dwelling with God forever is the place of their hope. And they live with such contentment and such joy no matter what mess is going on around them. Who is on the throne? There is no more important question for us to answer, is there? Then who is it that sits on the throne in the core of our life? 
I would not be doing my job as an under-shepherd if I didn't ask you to consider that question today. Right? Who, who is on the throne at the core of your life? Because there's nothing worse than living a life where we're faking. There's nothing worse than living a life where self is still on the throne. There's nothing worse than living a life where the idols of this world have crept onto the throne of our life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Right? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for everything you do flows from it. Right? Everything you do flows from it. Would you guys bow your heads with me? And let's just spend a moment with God's Spirit searching our hearts. Who is on the throne of your heart? Friends, let me encourage you. What matters is not how you entered this room, but how you leave it. What matters is that we have met with the living God and we cannot remain unchanged when we meet with him. What matters is that no matter what the state of your heart was this morning, that this afternoon, Jesus sits there alone in control of your life. Would you acknowledge Jesus as king on the throne in the core of who you are? One of the things that we do every Sunday when we gather is respond to Jesus on the throne in the core of our life. And we're going to respond to him right now. We're going to respond to him by singing his praises because he is our King and our Lord. And the song that we're going to sing is particularly mindful of that, that he is everything in our life. We're also going to respond by giving back to him of what is precious to us, of our goods. There are a lot of different ways that you can give here at Friendship, but the red buckets will go by, and if you choose, you can give towards that. We do that as a response to what Jesus has done in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the plan that you have put in place in order to save our souls so that the person of Jesus might take up residence where he belongs, on the throne, in the core of who we are. And we ask that as we live out of that this week, you might be glorified in all things. And we lift up your name now and exalt you, and we sing of your goodness. We sing recognizing that you are what matters in our life more than anything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.